All right, we get better at that every week. And we even sang the song a little bit. One of these days, we're all going to be singing that song and blessing our children as they go. So that's the, that's the picture we hope to get to. So as we come to the Word of God, let us pray this morning. Father, thank you for the joy of worship. And again, we're, so, uh, we're just so grateful that you've helped us to figure out how to have children back in worship with us. What a gift and what a blessing. And we pray now that as we draw into this time where we focus on your word, that we would recognize its power, its inspiration, its authority in our lives, that it is by its own nature filled by the Holy Spirit and therefore transformational to us. And as we think today about what it means to be a missional church, uh, that you would take our feet and let them be, Lord, swift and beautiful for thee as we move into our world on mission for you. So, Lord, uh, overcome the sinful nature of my heart today, uh, the broken nature uh, of my spirit, and you, uh, you alone be glorified. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, two texts this morning, uh, both fairly brief, the first in Mark and the second in John. So, uh, out of reverence for the word, would you stand for the reading? So, from Mark, uh, this is Jesus uh, explaining the purpose for which he has called uh, the original 12. It said he appointed 12, this is verse 14, he appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And then in John chapter 20, verse 21, it says, and again, Jesus says, so this is now the resurrected Jesus. Again, Jesus says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. This is the word of the Lord today for you, his church. And may we understand and begin to understand what is the missional nature of our lives in his church as we fill it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So the Presbyterian Church uh, has a unique history uh, through the years. We've kind of divided and, and redistributed ourselves several times, but there's some great stories in the Presbyterian Church, and one takes place way back in the 1950s, and it involves a, a pastor by the name of Earl Palmer. Uh, Earl Palmer went on to become the uh, senior pastor at uh, University Press in Seattle. He's kind of a I don't know, quasi-legendary figure in Presbyterian church uh, circles. But when Earl Palmer decided to go to seminary, he and three other guys that he was friends with, they decided to go to Princeton, which is on the East Coast, and they all lived on the West Coast. So transportation was a little bit of a problem, so they kind of figured out a way that they could mitigate their expenses and make it work. They would drive to the East Coast in the fall, back for Christmas, then back East for the second term, back home in the summer, and they decided that they would drive continuously. So they had four people, one car, they just keep driving 24-7, and they just rotate through who was driving, the other three sleeping. So at the end of one term, they start heading west to drive, and they're kind of rotating through, and they get about halfway across the country. They get all the way to Iowa, and it's the middle of the night, it's about two, three in the morning, it's pitch black, and the guy who's driving 
realizes his shift is about over. They need gas. So he's looking for a gas station on the westbound side of the road, but he can't find one. So he makes a U-turn and finds a gas station on the eastbound side of the road. And so then he just dutifully does what you do. He wakes up Earl Palmer. He's going to drive next. Wakes up Earl Palmer and the driver has to pump the gas. So this guy gets in the car, goes to sleep. Earl Palmer pumps the gas, gets back in the car. He's kind of bleary-eyed, not thinking. He just pulls out on the road, heading east. So the first clue for Earl is when he sees an old American uh, Trailways bus going the other way and the sign up above the, the driver, you know, says San Francisco. And Palmer said, my first thought was, what a lousy bus company. They, they, they can't even get their signs right. They're not going to San Francisco. They're coming from San Francisco. So he just keeps right on driving. Next thing, about 30, 45 minutes later, Greyhound bus, sign up above, Salt Lake City. And then he says to himself, gosh, bus companies in general are so bad these days. You can't find a decent one to get the sign right. Keeps going. Two or three hours later, the sun begins to come up in front of him. And he said, even then, I tried to rationalize in my mind, maybe I'm at a weird angle in the road. You know, maybe I'm, I'm not looking at it right. But finally, as it came up more and more, he had to acknowledge he was going the wrong way. And when he had to wake all his friends and fellow classmates and tell them, I've taken this essentially eight hours out of the way and it's going to cost us all the additional gas money. He was not very popular. But I share that with you this morning because I think it's so illustrative of the complexities of human behavior and even the behavior of the church. You know, we are sometimes just so averse to change that even all the signs can be saying, you're going the wrong way, you need to change, and we still ignore them and just keep doing what we're doing. This is so true of guys when there's something maybe medically wrong with them. You know, a guy gets a, a growth on his arm that hadn't been there. And he looks at it and he goes, oh, I'm sure that's nothing. A week later, it's the size of a quarter. And he goes, oh, maybe that's infected. A week later, it's the size of Minnesota. And he says, oh, well, maybe I bumped it on something. He's ignoring all the signs because he doesn't want to go to the doctor because if he gets to the doctor, then he might have to change something about his arm. It's just true of human nature. We're averse to change so much so that sometimes we'll ignore the obvious signs that we need, that we're going the wrong way and that we need to change. And friends, it's absolutely been true in the history of the Presbyterian Church. I'm gonna give you a quick church history lesson, courtesy of Jim Singleton, who's a, a professor at Gordon-Conwell, and Jim has done a lot of study on the whole missional church idea, which we're gonna be using in these next uh, 10 weeks. But in the 1950s, so post-World War II, was kind of the heyday of the Presbyterian Church. Honestly, American culture is becoming more and more consumer-driven. We're entering into that consumer a phase of our lives. After World War II, economy's growing, houses, cars are more affordable, all kinds of gadgets are being created. So America very much becomes a consumer culture. And about that time, the Presbyterian church is growing. We built more churches in the 1950s 
than any other decade. Our percentage worship attendance was higher in the 1950s than any other decade. So as the culture was getting more consumer-driven, what was happening? For the first time, you had uh, denominational switching. We call it the circulation of the saints, right? Because, you know, you weren't going to be loyal to your denomination. Why? Because in consumer culture, well, maybe someone's got better products to offer over here. So we'll go see what the Presbyterians are doing. The Presbyterians went to check out the Methodists. The Methodists checked out the Baptists and so on and so forth. And the Presbyterians did really well. Why? Because Presbyterians love education. Educated people generally have better jobs, better jobs, higher pay, higher pay, more contributions to the church, more contributions to the church, more ability to do better programs. They're going to make people come to your campus. It was the heyday of the attractional model. We were doing our best song and dance routine. Come see us. Look at the Presbyterians. And we did great. But then as the decades passed, things continued to change And honestly, we kind of fell behind because as the culture grew in its consumer nature, pretty soon you had pastors flying out of the ceiling into their pulpits, wearing skinny jeans and having cool haircuts on campuses with hot yoga and dry cleaners, right? Because we're trying to make it as convenient for all of you to come get what you want so that you'll come to our campus. And frankly, we just tanked. Why? Presbyterians are not hip and cool. Case in point right? And so we, we said, oh, we'll do contemporary worship. But our contemporary worship, we were still singing songs that were 20 years old. So we did it really bad. And then, then we kept trying to catch up until finally, a guy named Daryl Guter, theologian, some other church leaders, stopped and said, is this really what the church is supposed to be? Is the church supposed to be constantly pursuing looking like the culture so the culture will come to it? Or maybe are we supposed to be thinking about forming a church that looks like the nature and character of God? Is it possible, Buter asked, that we're going the wrong way and we've been ignoring the signs? And a lot of churches agreed with him and said, you know what? We we gotta change. Now, not not everybody agreed with that. There are some churches that just put their head down and said, oh no, no, we're good. We're just gonna keep doing what we're doing, driving the wrong direction better. And First Press easily could have done that. But two years ago, we said, we don't wanna just be chasing culture. We want to stand back and go, I want us to form a church that is formed and shaped and looks like the nature and character of God. And so we started asking that question, what would that church look like? And what we discovered in our study of scripture is what you call the Missio Dei. The Missio Dei is the mission of God. Literally, Missio means sending. It's the sending of God. When God came to the earth, he came on purpose. He came with a mission. Therefore, we as his people who have been made in his image should have that same dynamic at work in our lives. We all should be on the Missio Dei. The church, the foundation of the church is the Missio Dei. 
It's the mission of God that we are all privileged to take part in. So think about this with me. How many times as you look at scripture do we find that God is sending? You look first at John 3, 16. I bet you could say this with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But don't forget verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He sent his son on mission. He sent his son not to condemn the world, but to save it. God is ascending God. But all that started way back in Exodus, remember? When God was gonna save the people of Israel from their captivity in Egypt. And so God comes down to Moses. And you remember Moses is going, oh God, you know, the burning bush thing. He's like, well, what do I do? And God says, I've, I've seen the misery of my people. I've heard their cries. And so I have come down to deliver them. And Moses, I am sending you to Pharaoh. God sends Moses to accomplish the mission of God through the people of Israel. God's ascending God. He sends the prophets to the people of Israel. Ultimately, he sends the Holy Spirit. He sends the disciples, Matthew 28, the very end of that gospel, go and make disciples of all nations. Go, you're being sent. I love that the Greek word for sending is the word apostello, from which in the Mark text, what we see is the original disciples, they had an office. It was called apostle. The word that the critical office in the church literally means the sent out ones. God is apostelloing us into the world. And so the apostles were the sent out ones. You and I become the sent out ones in John 17 when Jesus prays this. My prayer, he's praying to God, is that you, God, not take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. Here it is. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. He's praying for you. He's praying for the disciples that would come to faith through the original apostles, through that office. And so generation after generation, the church has grown and has built itself on a foundation that is based on the sending nature of God. That's why the church has multiplied over and over again through the years, because we understand that we're all being sent out, that the missio Dei is the foundation of the church. Why? Because God in his nature is a sending God. So practically speaking then, what does that look like? What does a missional sending church look like? Well, we'll look at both of our texts, but first, the missional church gathers as we are today, in order to be scattered. We gather to be scattered. Mark 3, he appointed 12 that they might be with him, gather, and that he might send them out, scatter. Uh, theologian Alan Cole writes this, the primary purpose of the appointment of the 12 was so they could continually be in the company of Jesus, who was at once teacher and leader. They would receive formal and informal instruction as well as lay to heart his casual sayings. So the first part is they, 
They're with Jesus. And they're not with Jesus by themselves. They're with Jesus together. They gather as the 12 in his presence to be taught, to be loved, to learn. Then he says, the second purpose was so that he might send them out as his own personal representatives on mission for him, being heralds of the news of the establishment of God's rule. Friends, we gather in order to be scattered. That's why we have changed the structure of our Sunday morning. We just didn't pull this out of thin air. It's based on what we believe to be true about scripture. It's our mission statement. Be loved, love the city. Know truth, live truth. In essence, what is that? Gather, scatter, gather, scatter. It's the foundation of the missional church. You come this morning and you gather to be in worship. You gather with other people so that you know the love of Christ and you're drawn into the presence of God to reorient your life in the middle of all the chaos. You remember God is on the throne and he's called you to faithful obedience. He catches you up into that presence and into the spirit of worship and he calls you from that moment spiritually formed by what you experience in worship together and then he calls you into that mission. So what do we do next? We go and we have an hour for you to be equipped. And we got the pastor's class and a host of other classes. We want to equip you and prepare you to then go out into the world. And this is where I'm going to, I may offend a few people, but I want to talk to all of you who are worshiping online with us this morning. You know, it's hard, I know, sometimes to get to church. And if you're watching right now and, and you're sick you're homebound, you live in another city, you just couldn't get here. I'm thrilled that, that we are broadcasting this service to you. But if you're just at home because it's convenient and you didn't want to make the effort to take the time to get here, what I want you to understand, hard as it is for me to say, you can't grow with and care for and be sharpened by the gathered community if you're not here. And when you stay home, essentially what you've said is that church for you is just about you. And you've missed the ecclesiology, the theology of the church that is a gathered body that is then called to be scattered. And so I want to challenge you today to break the habit and be here with us that we can be scattered together and to be the people that God has called us to be. So we gather in order to be scattered. Then secondly, and let me just say, I hope that our online numbers drop precipitously, okay? Not because you're mad at me, but because you're actually here. So I really hope for decreasing numbers there. Second, so where are we being sent? We're being sent, not just anywhere, we're being sent into the world. John 20, 21, I, Jesus says, I am sending you. If you forgive anyone his sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. So where are they being sent? They're being sent to the unbelieving. They're being sent to the people who need the grace and the forgiveness of God. They're being sent into the world. John 17, 18, I've sent them into the world. Acts 1, 8, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So they're being sent to these four places. And let me just be super clear here. I know we love to go to the ends of the earth. And as a congregation, we have and we will. 
We wanna be engaged in other countries. We wanna support missionaries. We wanna do all those things. But at the same time, we've gotta figure out how to love our city well. We have to figure out Jerusalem. And so we've got new plans on how to do that. One of them is a perfect example, uh, is our new women's Bible study. So we've had women's Bible studies here all the time. And one of the temptations of the enemy, I'm telling you, is that we become serial Bible study attenders. Okay, some of y'all go to BSF and that's great. Man, you learn a lot and it's intense. There's all that homework you have to do. If I was you, I wouldn't do that. I don't wanna do all that work. I'm kidding. It's a great study. It's a great study. Community Bible study, same thing. Some of y'all are Beth Moore groupies. Man, if there's a Beth Moore study, I'm, I'm there. The enemy though loves you. Why? Because you go to all those Bible studies and yet you are making no difference in the world at all. He loves keeping you in Bible study. So I'm a crazy pastor who wants you to do less Bible study. And that's what we're gonna do in our women's group. Guess what? We've got 65 women who are gonna be taught by Shannon Basso and my wife, Lee, for nine months with the understanding that next year, they're gonna take what they learned this year and they're gonna teach it in their neighborhoods. So we're not going to Bible study anymore just to go to Bible study. We're going because we wanna live missionally in our neighborhood and all those women and men in our neighborhoods who never go to church, oh, if I invite them to my house to come have a cup of coffee and some discussion, oh, then maybe I'll get invited in. See, we, we just by our lives, things can begin to change. So that's the second thing. We're gonna, uh, we're gonna be moved out into the world and you're gonna see that happening in our church. Then third thing, we're moving into the world for what purpose? Well, that's Mark chapter three again. He says essentially three things. He goes, I want you to go out into the world to preach, to have authority to drive out demons. And then a little bit later in Mark 6, he says to anoint people with oil and to heal them. Okay, so I know the disciples did a lot of things, but I think they can generally be grouped into those three things. Preach, confront evil, and help be an agent of healing. I think those are the three things that we're being sent into the world to do. So when I say preach, what does that mean? That doesn't mean this. It might be this, but there are very far fewer number of people like me, and there are way more of you. And what preaching is, is simply communicating the hope of the gospel to people who are lost and wandering. And you're gonna do that sometimes by your words, but oftentimes you're gonna do it by your life. Now we can't ignore the necessary preparation. First Peter three says what? Always be prepared. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks to give the reason for the hope that you have. So if somebody came up to you tomorrow at your office, you're fumbling around for a cup of coffee in the morning, and they say to you, why do you always go to church on Sunday? Your answer would be, see, that's what we gotta think about. But I would tell you, that more often than not, it is the witness of your life. And this is where I wanna give you this great example. I got this email last night and I got permission to use it. 
because it's exactly what I'm talking about. When you live for Christ in a way that's different from the way the rest of the world lives. So that's another great question to ask yourself. When people look at you, would they say you live differently than the culture? Or would they say you've just completely bought in and they see no difference between you and everybody else? Are we living differently so that somebody would stop you at the water cooler and go, I see something different. So there's a a young woman in our church right now who's in a really tough battle with cancer. Her roommate from college 20 years ago, she and this woman communicate back and forth all the time. And, And this person in our church has been praying for 20 years because her roommate has just been struggling in her faith, was in the church and then got married and just kind of decided faith wasn't real, kind of let go of it. But she sends me this email and she's asking me for kind of help in having this conversation. She says, she's very intelligent and very skeptical of the church. She's been asked to write copy in her job for two Christian clients. And so she's been doing a lot of reading to appropriately assist her clients. Additionally, I think she's especially drawn to the way I have found peace during my cancer journey. Here's the key. For the first time in our 20-year friendship, she actually said to me, I find myself wanting what you have. That's preaching. That's what I'm talking about. Just just let Jesus spill out of you. And other people are going to say, I want that. So we, we preach by our life and, yeah, at times, by our words. Second thing, we confront evil. Now, that doesn't mean we're getting all bothered about demon possession and all that kind of stuff. But 1 John 4, 4 says, greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. So I don't have to fear evil. God's given us authority over evil. So there's no fear in any of this. But understand, if we live on mission, if we're being sent into the world for what purpose? To be preaching what is the hope of the gospel, to tell people about the goodness of God to restore and renew what has been destroyed by the enemy, we have to acknowledge that there is indeed an enemy. That if we're trying to renew things, he's trying to destroy them. And part of the requirement of being sent into the world is we confront it when we see it. And this, friends, is where we get too apathetic. If I see a brother or a sister who's in a relationship with someone who's not their spouse, I'm gonna confront that. Not for the purpose of judgment, but for the purpose of healing and restoration. They were calling people back to Christ. Or if I know that somebody has a drinking problem, I'm going to speak to that. If I know there's a pornography addiction or there's an abusive situation, I'm going to confront those things. You know, the other thing in life that the enemy loves is tight-fisted people. God says you're either for me or you're against me. The enemy loves financial hoarders who think that their money is theirs. Why does the enemy love that? Because that creates an under-resourced church that is unable to accomplish the purpose for which God has called her. So yeah, I talk about that to confront the things that are footholds for the enemy. We confront those things in our lives and that requires courage. And then the last thing 
is we're called to be healers. I said this to you a few weeks ago in my sermon on marriage. What I talked about that day was the whole concept of faithfulness. See, when we live in a world that doesn't understand fidelity, then we live in a deeply wounded world because we're constantly being betrayed by others. And when you're wounded, what happens? You protect your wound and you withdraw. And in order to protect yourself, you got one arm covering your wound and sometimes with the other arm, you lash out at others. It's just because you're wounded. And so what God calls us to be sent into the world is to be healers in the chaos and to invite people out of those corners where they're trying to protect their wound. And we invite them out and remind them that there is a wounded healer in Jesus who will never betray them, who will never let them down, and that he can be the balm to the wound of their life that will let them live in the way that he's called them to live. So yeah, when, when Susu Gordy goes into the woods to visit homeless people, she's a healer because she reminds a group of outcast men and women that the rumor of the gospel is true. When you go visit a, a shut-in or a homebound person, you're a healer because you've just struck a blow against one of the greatest health crises in our country, loneliness. If you pick up the phone and call someone that you know is having such a difficult, hard time, you become a healer by just sharing the love and the grace of God that you have found in Jesus. We've been sent after we gather, we scatter into the world to preach truth, to confront evil where we find it, and to be those who offer the healing grace and the goodness of God. There are, there are these two forces that you will see uh, in the world sometimes, and they're kind of opposite of each other. The first is centripetal force. Centripetal force is that old game we used to play on the playground called tetherball. Remember tetherball, a ball on the end of a rope attached to the top of a pole. And as one person hits the ball one way, the other one's trying to hit it the other direction. And whoever wins is the one who gets that ball spinning faster and faster and faster. That's centripetal force that makes the ball spin quickly, more, more faster, faster, faster around that central point that it's attached to. The opposite of centripetal force is centrifugal force, which is what compels or forces someone or something out from that center fixed point. So that's the merry-go-round on the playground. So my daughter Kaylee used to love the merry-go-round, only she was a little odd. She liked to lay down on it and look at the sky as she spun. So she would just lay down and I would spin that thing faster and faster and faster. And she used to get frustrated because the faster she went, the more it forced her off the thing. And eventually her feet would start hitting the ground and she'd be going, daddy, and I'd be going, hang on. Right? Okay, so the church is about centrifugal force. We gather in the middle. We gather before the throne of God 
And by the power of the Holy Spirit, the church is sent out into the world, but the cry of the church is never, hang on. The cry of the church is let go. Let go and let God send you and us as a body to fulfill the Missio Dei, the sending of God, the mission of God, because the church should be built on his nature and character. Let's move away from where we were heading before and let's move toward what God wants us to be in the church, ascending church, living on mission for him. Let's pray together. And so, Father, we pray and thank you that we get to gather, that like those first disciples, we, we gather at your feet and we soak up your teaching and we internalize your love. But Father, please don't let us stop there. Don't just let us be gatherers. But Lord, give us a vision for where we are to be scattered. And as a church, may we be equipping this body for just that end. So Lord, may we not be unwitting instruments of the enemy, tight-fisted serial Bible study attenders, but Father, may you make our feet swift and beautiful as we move out to be your servants. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.